Turn to John 20. The first appearance to a group of people. Uh, last week, you folks got John 20, 1 through 18. Second service, I didn't even preach it. I went another direction. Because of the mercy seat, I went ahead and preached on the mercy seat. So, uh, you're the ones, but they didn't record it, so be glad that if you didn't like that sermon, it's past. Uh, my material goes like hotcakes, 60 cents a dozen. Uh, John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Shalom alaikum. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold, the forgive, withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Two very difficult verses to understand. What do they mean? What do they mean? Receive the Spirit. What did that mean? Did they? Two, go, forgive, remit sins, and they shall be forgiven. That's pretty powerful. What does the verse? A lot of folks say, I don't believe it. What does the verse mean? Say, I don't get the privilege of dodging difficult verses. You do. You just keep going. I got to deal with them because I'm not a dodger. I deal with it. I got to deal with it. What does it mean? What does this interpretation mean? So, we want to look at four great things Christ offered in this upper room. He's already shown himself to uh, Mary, and some of the women uh, saw Jesus risen, but it was Mary that went back, and Peter and John ran to the tomb, and so he has made that appearance. But now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples are locked away in this room, scared to death, that if what they did to their master and leader, if they can pull that off, surely none of them are exempt from being killed in like manner. And they were right. They could be killed just at the command of the Jewish authorities. They could work it out. So these men, they know their lives are on the line. They're scared. They fled Christ. That They've hid uh, their war shouts from our perspective. Where were you? You didn't stand with him in the time of his trial. Right. Where are you now? We're scared to death. In an upper room, the doors are locked, and we don't know what's going to happen next. So we're in a trembling, scared mode. Christ appears to them, and there's four things I see that he gives in them to them. There's interesting there's probably five great commissions in the Gospels. Matthew 28, go to all the nations, commands them. Mark, go, preach to the nations. Luke, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power, then go to the nations. This chapter right here 
as I have been sent by the Father, so I send you, is often called the Great Commission in John's Gospel. Acts 1, stay in Jerusalem, be filled with the Spirit, go to Judea, Jerusalem, go. Five great commissions. This is John's great commission. But there's four things I pick up in this little brief section when he talked to them. The first thing was peace. He, uh, it was a common expression, shalom, alakum, peace be unto you. Very common, very common. But it's interesting that he repeats this twice in this upper room to scared men, trembling men, and I think it's much more than just the oriental greeting, peace. Now, all of Paul's epistles open with this, may grace and peace be yours in the Lord Jesus. The first thing the risen Messiah says to them, peace. Now, let me ask you this. If you had failed to obey your parents, if you had failed in an assignment, if you had fled someone uh, in the hour of their need, and you got out of there because you're trying to save your neck, what do you think the first thing they would say to you once you saw them? Where were you? Good answer. Where were you? Uh, uh, how about a lecture on being cowards? How about upbraiding them for you wimps? You think I could build anything with men like you? You think I can build a church with guys that bail out? We've already seen your bailout ability. My dad called them drag-up artists. With iron workers, if a guy was sent out of the hall to a job, if he got to the job and saw it was going to be hard and dirty and dangerous, guess what? He'd go back to the hall. I don't want that job. I want a better, easier job. They called them drag-up artists. Give me my subsistence for showing up, but I'm not, no way. I want an easy one. So what would you expect to hear? Peace is the last word. But guess what? A resurrected Christ comes to his own. There's no lecture. There's no, no upbraiding. He just gives them the thing they need the most, peace. And peace from Christ, he is the source of peace. There's two kinds of peace for the believer peace with God, and that's ultimately what Christ is just one. I've gone to the cross. It is finished. I paid for the debt. I've been glorified. I've risen. I've pleased the Father about you men and all your failures. I want to come and tell you I brought you peace. Let me say this. He's going to go on to tell them to represent him, but you can never represent a God that you're a wreck about. It's hard to go to the world and offer a peace that you're not experiencing. Has Christ brought you peace? Are you a person at peace in your own spirit? There's peace with God by faith in Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. True. The, the enmity's ended. The war's ended. Uh, the personal rifts are ended. We've been reconciled in Christ. Then there's the peace of God. Stop worrying. Stop fretting. Get where you can enjoy the peace of God by casting it on God and be a person at peace. And 
I think this is the great challenge we must take to the world. Have we met anyone that has brought us peace? Are you at peace with God? Have you, have you met anyone that has ended this rift between you and God so you have this assurance, I know God, nothing stands between, it is well with my soul, and two, I'm not fretting about the rent, about the dog, about the wife, about the mother-in-law, about all the debts. I'm at peace because I'm trusting in God who has everything under control. So I'm at peace within my own being. I'm sorry to say, being a pastor, I've met some Christians that are nervous wrecks. And they're fretters. They're always fretting about something. And I thought, could I ever get any good news out of them? Could they ever bear good news? Well, they couldn't because they haven't got any yet for themselves. Are you at peace? He says, I come and I say, peace. Twice I want to say it. Peace. Don't be afraid. I, I did exactly what I said. I'm alive. I'm not afraid of the Roman government. They can never touch me again. I can handle the church. I'm going to build the church. There is peace with God. When I am afraid, I was reading Psalms 56.3 today, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Peace with God. That's a wonderful thing. Peace with God. You know, when I got saved, I was on 15th and Cutting at the little church we went to. And when we drove home, we lived in San Pablo. That night, we would drive down through, we had to, we would go down, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the street now, it used to be 10th Street to get over to Cutting. And we'd always pass there, McDonald and 10th, and there was Hotel Don. And I never forget that night coming home, the only word I could have used to describe how I felt was peace with God. My sins were forgiven. I had received Christ that night. I was a scared boy. I was afraid of World War III. We were at the Suez Canal. I thought we were going to see Armageddon. And Russia was there with Egypt and uh, the United States with Israel. And it's one of these duels any moment. You know, I'm thinking atomic warfare. I'm a scared kid. I think it's, it's over, and I know I'm going to go to hell. That night when I received Christ, when I came home, I thought, push all the buttons you want. I'm at peace with God. Push all the buttons you want. I'm at peace with God. And every day that I've struggled with worry, I've been amazed now that I've lived a few years how many of my worries never happened and how many of them I've been delivered from just by trusting God. He goes on and he says something that's remarkable here. What does it mean? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. What does that mean? As the Father sent me, even so, I am sending you. I'd call this the Great Commission or the Great Mission. Uh, let's think about that. Uh, uh, why did Jesus leave heaven? The Father was sending him to the world. 
He wasn't sending him to hold a Bible conference for a bunch of angels. He was sending him to a hostile world that the Father knew would crucify him, that he would not go back to heaven like he came. He'd go back with scars, wounds, crucified. I am sending the Son, and how did the Son come? He came in complete obedience to his Father. He did the will of the Father. He went to the cross. He, died. he could do no more in the Father's will. He, he, refused. he refused to not drink the cup. He said, your will be done, not mine. And so in Christ's obedience to the Father, he is saying to these men, I want my mission to the world to continue, but my mission to the world will only continue through you. I'm going out of sight. I'm going back to heaven, but I am sending my church, my people, my disciples. I'm sending you to the same people who crucified me. I'm sending you to the same world that hates me. I am sending you there Fulfill it. Obey me like I obeyed the Father. Go to the same audience as I went to. I am sending you just like the Father sent me. There's a verse that we ought to read. Let me, it's 1 Timothy 1.15. Listen to this verse. It's a beautiful summary of one of the reasons Jesus came. Listen to what it says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to have another Bible study with cranky sinners or cranky saints. He came into the world just to run in a holy club with all the believers, and see who's cutting it straight. He came into the world to save sinners, and every once in a while he'll save a church sinner, of whom I am the foremost. Now notice, I didn't come into the world just to hold Bible studies. Some of you are all into Bible studies. Are you into sinners? Let me tell you one of my great sins. I'm always dealing with saints and not going after sinners. The biggest sinners I deal with are sitting in front of me. That's you. But you're saved. Majority of you, you claim to know Christ. And this is my little world, my little platform. Anathema in one sense. It's the sin pastors that just preach to saints all the time. I'm in the midst of always raising budgets, putting out fires, uh, trying to save marriages, trying to get disgruntled saints to talk to each other, uh, preach the Word, create another Bible study, and and, uh, hope you like the service. Oh, what a mission. What a mission. Buildings, budgets, and bodies. Where are you going to park on Sunday? Oh, we got to raise the budget. Whoa, Jesus died for the budget, you know. That's foremost on his mind. And pretty soon I'm thinking, don't be talking to me about evangelism. I got enough to do. What are you doing? I'm dying in the church. 
doing less than what he said, that if the primary mission was reaching sinners, how are we doing that? How are you doing it? What's your mission? Are you on target? I just heard a lecture recently by John Ordberg, pastor of Menlo Park Press. Uh, used to be with Bill Hybels, and he gave a lecture, and he called it Mission and Shadow Mission. And it was very interesting, ambiguous at first, but as I, I kept listening to it, he, he would say this, every one of us has been given a mission by God in life. Uh, saved you for a purpose. He has designed to use you in a certain way, according to Ephesians. And, and we know some things he wants us to do. Share the gospel with sinners, for sure. Use our giftedness to build up one another in obedience to God, whatever that mission is. And he said what we often do is we get caught up with what he called shadow mission. That is side, side ventures, distractions, really, that we're off target, but we're over here and the interviewer of John says, and what might that be for you? He said, well, I've taken up golf, and I love it. It gives me lots of diversion. Uh, I really enjoy the game. He said, I could be uh, consumed with it and, and be pouring my life over here. When I really was, this is my primary mission. Some of you don't know what your primary mission is. Some of you might, and you've gone to secondary things. And so you've lost the cutting edge. I saw this when I was a young preacher. I saw, because I was one, among poor churchmen. I was among poor preachers, guys that didn't make $10,000 a year. And many of them always had money schemes going. They're always figuring out ways to make money. When you're broke, money stays in your mind a lot. I said, when you're broke... You know, you, you got so much, you just say, you know, I got more money than I've ever had. I got the kids raised, hallelujah. But we got 12 grandchildren, and they know how to tap the resources. <laughs> Let me tell you. And, and you think, oh, college tuition's over. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm suffering from mal-tuition, uh, pay, paying for education. I got three kids in school now. And you get them raised, and you think, whoo, we can hold on to some of this money. I worried the most about money when I had the least. Well, these preachers I ran with, they were always thinking, because they were broke. They were in small little churches. Churches run less than 100. And they're always talking about money, and as a young preacher, I would see them, and uh, this is weird, and you can talk to my wife who said I was weird. I asked God to keep me semi-broke so I wouldn't fall in love with money. And that's when I was young. I'm kind of saying, Lord, I've revamped that a little. Bring it on while you can. But, but because I saw these men being distracted by the money thing, and, and now I look back, they were broke. They were good men, but they got into side missions. They started dabbling into this and dabbling in that and doing, just trying to make, they had no retirement plans. They, they, they were just barely making it. But it was often the thing they became known for. Oh, they've got property now. They've got this venture. They've got that venture. And, and it just, they lost the focus of their ministry. 
as the Father sent me, so I send you. I don't want what I went to the cross about to die, and the mission is tied up with you men. I will continue my mission through you if you'll obey me like I obeyed the Father. The great shame of the evangelical church is we've quit going to the world. Most of us, let me tell you how it goes if you're a Christian, how I grew up. You get saved, and uh, then we've got to get you sanctified, got to get you holy. You can't run with anybody you ran with, you know. Got to get away from those dirty sinners that God saved you among. And for those first months, when you go to them, you're so obnoxious, you don't know how to witness you just kind of uh, turn or burn, you know. And, hey, buddy, you, you need Jesus now. Are you going to accept him? No. Well, I won't be able to be around. Okay, thank And we did that. I know guys that did that to their parents. They just say, Dad, you need to get saved. The Hirschman boys, Gregor, man, they were so tough on their dad. They say, you need, you need to get saved. And, well, I, well, I don't want to get saved. Well, uh, you know, Dad, you're going to hell. Well, thank you, son. I appreciate knowing that. Uh, by the way, Dad, could I borrow a thousand? <laughs> could I borrow a thousand? Yeah, I still need money, but you're going to hell. Could you break it a little easier? See, we don't know how to witness when we first get saved. We just, boom, there we are. And then guess what? Then you really get sanctified, and in about a year, you don't have any unsafe friends, because now you're holy. I want to go to church and prayer meetings, honey. Who do you witness to? Witness? I've got my wife saved five times. You, you know? Come on. I, I only run with the saints, and I'm critical of them. Because they don't cut it straight enough. Or you are. Or you need to get around some hellions. You need to get around some people going purity to hell and quit being so critical. Quit running around with the saints. Quit trying to straighten me out. Why don't you go to a man that's lost, that needs mercy, that needs gospel, that needs grace, that needs somebody who gives a damn whether they go to hell or not? What? You want me to do that? Me? I want to be in the choir, honey. I want to be a deacon. What did Jesus say? First thing Jesus said to his disciples, Listen to what he said. Follow me, and I will make you reverends. Oh, oh, fishers, fishers of men. Well, well, I thought I'd at least be a deacon, at least a bishop. By the way, how's fishing doing? Have you caught anybody lately? Said, so, no, you haven't been fishing. And you know what? People, they'll do this to me. They'll bring their unsaved friends here to church, and they say, Pastor, you better preach good today. <laughs> I better preach good. Yeah, I brought unsaved people with me today. Well, well have you thought about sharing the Oh, no, 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 that's your job. Okay, and so I'm fishing in the aquarium. said, man, you didn't catch any today, did you? You know, this was it. You preached on divorce today, or you preached on the 
finance campaign. When are you fishing? And that's why churches like us die. We'll reach a certain size, and we could be dying now. You plateau because you start living for yourself. We got enough programs in this church. You can die in the choir. Think you're doing God's will. And I appreciate the choir. You know I do. You can die being a Sunday school teacher. You can die being a deacon in this church. Because you've got to say, am I on mission? Am I on mission? And let me tell you something that happens. Many times people in church work, uh, they lose the vision of God, but they keep doing the work for God. Uh, it's like this. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. I saw God, a great God, a glorious God, a gracious God. And, and then I heard him say, who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. You remember that, don't you? Any great work for God must start with the vision of God. Guess what happens? Let's say I'm the founder of this church under Jesus. I'm one of his sublets after 2,000 years. So I want to entrust you with a dance hall, see what I can do. And so we're over here, and we can get over here and be doing work for God while we've lost the vision of God. And the next generation, they keep doing our programs, keep singing in the choirs, be, be in the band, be doing something in the church. Do, do, you know, do you know God very well? What's he got to do with it? I like this. It's social outlet. I got lots of energy. I want to do something. I like to do a string. I like to do this. I like to do Wait, wait, wait. Have you ever got the vision of God? These men, he's saying, you see a risen Christ. You see a Christ that went to the cross. You have a Christ that did exactly what he said. You have a Christ that's been resurrected. I'm standing among you to bring you peace. Now I'm saying to you, my church, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you to the same people, the world, and I want you to take God to them. It may cost you. It cost me my life, but it was in the will of God. It was on mission. Some of you are dying without ever having been martyred. You're dying not doing the mission. It's a terrible thing. You could still be breathing and have died inside. You have nothing to live for, nothing to drive you. And he said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. If that brought Christ, why doesn't it move us? Are we on his mission or on our mission? So he said, as the Father sent me, I'm praying he'll send you. Third thing he promises them is divine enablement, the great enablement. He says, receive the Spirit. Now, most translations said he breathed on them or he breathed in them. It's not there in the Greek. He just simply breathed. Some think he inhaled some. And here's the picture. He just said, receive the Spirit. Now, here's the issue. Did they? Did they at this time receive the Spirit? And there's a lot of discussion on whether they did or not. 
I'm with those who take this as a symbolic act. He said in the Gospels, my hour has come. And he was talking about his death and resurrection. But there would be days and weeks before it ever happened. He, but he would just announce, the hour has come. But it didn't mean it happened right there where he said it. It would take a little time. The hour has come. And so he's saying, receive the Spirit. Now you read Luke. He says, go into Jerusalem and stay there until I send you the Spirit. They had to wait 40 days. But what he's saying in John is, I've gone, I've been raised, I'm glorified. <sighs> receive the Spirit. But they didn't receive it right then. One of the reasons, uh, you know that for sure, is it didn't change anybody in that room. When he came on the day of Pentecost, he changed them radically. Thomas is still doubting. The disciples are still uh, fearful. Uh, they, they all go back to fishing in chapter 21. They must not have received the Spirit. They, they've lost their mission. But symbolically, he's saying, based on my resurrection and who I am, re receive the Spirit, which I believe they did on the day of Pentecost. Receive the Spirit. What he's saying to them, you're going to need great help and great enablement to stay on target and to do the mission and I'm not leaving you on your own. I promised you in John 14, 15, and 16, I'll send you another helper. I'll send you another comforter. And he's saying in that room, receive the Spirit. He's coming. And he did. Then he tells them finally, a great message I'm giving you. And I don't know if any of you know what this verse means. Look at the verse. You don't know what it means. I know you don't. Look. Look at it. I just dare you. And don't give the answer, Kevin. Uh, I'll tell you to be quiet. Let's see. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What in the world did he just say? What does this mean? Well, you know there's two, two realms of interpretation. How does Rome take this to be? Roman Catholic. They believe he invested the church with the authority to forgive you your sins. That's basically. He's giving them, these apostles, I'm giving you authority to forgive sins on earth. And so, when you go and see the confessional booth, uh, when you go... I remember being in Mexico City. I went to their central cathedral there. People lined up all around that cathedral waiting to see. They had confessional booths all over the place. They may have had five or ten people in line because, uh, Father, uh, I've sinned. Father, uh, I've committed adultery. Father, I've done this. I'm seeking forgiveness. Your sins be forgiven. And they take it off this verse. Whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. So that's the Catholic view. The Pope can forgive. The priest can forgive. Now, here's something interesting. In the New Testament, who all becomes a priest? Mm, the first Pope said that. First Peter 2.9. He's made you a generation of priests. Every believer is a priest. 
Uh, I just see where the Pope is getting ready to saint a couple of popes. I got sainted in 1958. I got sainted. As soon as I became a believer in Christ, he makes us saints, which means set apart ones, ones belonging to God. So I've already been sainted. You too. It scares me that some of you are saints. When I see Zim, I think he's a saint. No, it's hard on me. It's hard on me uh, to take it by faith. So we're all saints. We're all priests unto God. So I don't need to go through a middleman priest. I can approach God for myself, and I go through my high priest, Christ. Okay? All right. But what is he saying? Is this a power invested in the church so that we can forgive sins? Um, don't think so. Well, how do you take it? How do you understand it? Well, I would primarily understand that the message that's been entrusted to us has the power to bring forgiveness or to leave a man condemned. I'm entrusting to my people a power that go, I'm sending you on mission, and go, and you'll find as they preach this in the book of Acts, he would say, think, let me give you some verses in Acts, what they said. Um, I want to uh, give you a, the quotes. I get there, Acts 10, 43. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him, Christ, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Okay? Acts 10, 43. 13:38. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Men like Arthur Pink and different ones say, the power here is in the proclaimed word. We've been given a message that as you go and you preach the gospel to the world, in that message is the power to see for sins forgiven. And it's interesting. Their sins will be forgiven, and in the Greek, as they have already been forgiven, it's a strong verb there, then they will be retained as they've already been retained. And he's saying, you preach the gospel, and those whom God is going to save and those who will believe the gospel, they will see their sins forgiven, and those who reject the gospel will see their sins retained. It is the power of the church on mission, proclaiming the gospel. Now, some of you here today, Let's say if you're not a believer, and I come here today, I say, you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ wants to forgive you of all your sins, and he's done this by paying for them at the cross. And he comes now, and he offers you himself, that if you will receive him, he will forgive you. He will give you the gift of eternal life. Why not receive him now? And if you do, your sins will be washed away. And you say, what if I don't want to? They will be retained. They remain on you. You will remain in your sins, and you will be lost. Now, think of this church. Has God entrusted this kind of message to us? I think what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, he said, when we preach the gospel to some men, 
we smell like death. And to others, we smell like life. The same aroma, and some guys say, wow, that stinks. It sounds like, it smells like rotting flesh. Something died. No, I just told you about a crucified Christ that's alive, but it stinks to you. It stinks because you reject it. You won't buy it. You won't have it. And what will God do? I'll let your sins be retained. They shall not be forgiven. Others, when you heard it, I need peace. I need forgiveness. I need someone to make it right between God and I. And you show up and say, let me tell you the greatest news in all the world. God has made peace for you through his son. All he's asking you to do is receive it. And at that moment, he'll forgive you of your sins. And he'll make you his child. Now, we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that? If we don't believe it, it's no wonder we don't share it. You can't share what you're in doubt about. I'm telling you. What God's entrusted is true. I'm going to send the Spirit. I'm giving you a message that is life and death. I've offered you my peace. Oh, my. And I've sent you on mission. Are you on target or are you dabbling around with all this secondary stuff? What has God created you to do in Christ? And are you doing it? How many years you've wasted just wandering in the wilderness, going in circles, not doing anything that matters. Hobbies, discouragements, doubts, just, just out here doing stuff, nothing for which God primarily assigned you. Four great things he gives in this upper room. I promise you a great peace. I promise you a great commission. I promise you great enablement through the Spirit. And I grant to you the greatest message ever given, a message that has the power to bring forgiveness or to confirm someone's eternal ruin. It's wrapped up in the gospel. Not in a man or clergyman's ability to say, forgiven, not forgiven. For Mark says, who can forgive sins but God alone? I don't believe he's giving the church the power to forgive you. He's giving the gospel message the power. And as we proclaim it, you'll be saved or you'll be condemned based on what you do with the message. That is your eternal destiny. What have I done with the gospel? The gospel of Jesus Christ is great good news. May you stay on mission. May you not be wasting your life. With a thousand, you know what they did? They were in the midst of losing their mission. By chapter 21, guess what they do? They go back fishing. They go back fishing. What are you doing fishing, Peter? I've called you to be a preacher. I've called you to get ready for the day of Pentecost. When I don't know what else to do, I can go back to my shadow mission. I can fish anytime. I need a little diversion. I could always run to secondary issues. And some of you may be off target. Maybe you're not going like the sun went. That's our goal. That's the goal. You know, when I was about 42, uh, I uh, became flat in this church. I just, 
I ran out of goals. I, uh, we were at a theater. I, I was against the wall. I was exhausted. I was exasperated. And uh, uh, so I met with different ones to give me counsel. And I used to always, as a boy, preach or pray, keep me in motives, morals, and money. When I turned 40, 41, I began to pray, keep me on mission. Because so many preachers are bored with ministry by the time they're 40. And they start dabbling. They start dabbling. There's few men, one out of every 20 preachers, one out of 20 in their life being in the ministry. The other 19 got tired of it and found something else to do. One out of 20 continue doing ministry for all their life. It's too hard, too tough, too boring, too whatever. Something is too much, and they lose mission. And so their last years, they're selling cars. Their last years, I know of a great preacher wound up selling grave plots because he got bored and discouraged with ministry. Will you be on mission by the time we bury you? Will you still be doing what God called you to do in the first place? That's a question that only you and God can answer. Our Father, I pray, help us to stay on mission. You've given us the message. You've given us the enablement. Now give us the determination and the will to settle for nothing less than fulfilling the mission even as Christ did at the cross and the empty tomb. Let us stay on mission until we see Jesus face to face. In his name we pray.